0: Hello and welcome to Battlecast, I'm Luke and I'm joined in the bunker by the man who doesn't know how to wash his hands properly, I'm talking about the sick guy you know and love, I'm talking about
1: Chris, ladies and gentlemen, Chris, say something to the people. It's good to be back, did you miss me? No, I didn't miss you. You didn't miss me? I missed you a little. That was the show last week. That was pretty good. You didn't listen to it? No. No. Why would I want to listen to you scream into the void (laughs) and drown in your sad little Luke tears that Chris wasn't here to save the show? Well, we actually did miss you a little, buddy. But it was not easy flying solo last month. But I hope you're feeling better today. I'm pepped up. I'm full of pep. Even though I had to go to work five days this week. I am pepped up. You full of pe- oh,
0: you're, you're full of Pat's Blue Ribbon. Oh, <laughs> I love
1: Pat's Blue Ribbon. When we get off the air, you have to catch me up on all the new truths that I need to be aware of in front of your wife. Don't want you raging at me later because I don't remember that we were supposed to be helping the poor orphans last week. It was my fault we ended up in that strip joint. And the only reason you went in was to get me out. Totally true. And you slipped and accidentally put $200 on your credit card. You put $200 on my credit card Jack. Uh-huh, yeah, let's, yeah. That's what I did. All right, she's upstairs. Now, moving on. (laughs)
0: This month, we're going to finish the heroic story of the Battle of Constantinople. The Sultan Mehmet has been thrown back twice from the city walls, but the battle is just beginning. We've got religious persecution. We've got epic bloody warfare. And now, we've got a beer review. Yes, beer! Alright, tonight we're drinking Mythos. Mythos is brewed in Thessaloniki, Greece, and it's one of the top three beers in Greece. It comes in at 4.7 ABV. It's a pale lager. It also has a cool unicorn on the bottle. Alright, Chris, beers to you, man. What do you think?
1: Ah, it's crisp and refreshing. Pours a clear yellow with a nice white head on it. It's quite refreshing, especially for a standard Euro lager.
0: Yeah, I'm going to give this one three stars out of five. It's kind of a lawnmower beer. I mean, it's good for what it is. If you
1: need something to keep your throat wet. You know what? I'll go about three. We're usually generous here at Battlecast because we love our beer no matter how it comes.
0: And now, Constantinople. It's April 20th, and the Mets land forces were just repulsed with heavy losses. So were a sea forces twice. Mamet called his artillery commanders and prepared to unleash an even greater bombardment on the city's walls. Mamet had spent the day planning to take Constantinople's harbor. It was called the Golden Horn after its shape. If Mamet could take it, the city would never again receive reinforcements by sea. The harbor had to fall. Like General Jap at Dien Bien Phu, Mehmet decided to work on the city defense's piecemeal. Stephen Runciman explains what happened next. Quote, a renegade Italian had suggested to him that ships could be transported over land. Now, Mehmet had to figure out how to transport his ships from the Bosphorus into the city harbor, over a ridge that rose 200 feet above sea level. It would be a problem for a modern democracy. But Mehmet was a tyrant. He simply called for the materials and the manpower, and poof! They appeared as quick as you could say abracadabra. On April 21st, work was sped up. Thousands of artisans and laborers flooded the makeshift road, working round the clock. It looked like a scene from the 1920s movie Metropolis. Unnumbered slaves, under the harsh command of their masters, labored to build a road from nothing, and the road was built. On April 22nd, the strange procession of boats began. The cradles were lowered into the water, and the ships were tied to them. Then pulleys dragged them ashore, and teams of oxen were harnessed in front of each. In every boat, the oarsmen remained in their places. Sails were hoisted like the vessels were at sea. Flags were flown, drums beaten in fifes and trumpets, played while ship after ship was hauled up the hill, As if it was a fantastic parade. The participants throwing arrows at Greeks instead of candy at children. 71 warships were lugged by slaves over the hill and into the harbor while the Byzantines looked on gaped mouth like a woman touched for the first time. They couldn't believe it was happening. Around noon, the Christian sailors in the harbor and the watchmen on the city walls saw to their horror this extraordinary movement of ships down the hill and into the waters of their harbor. The people in the city thought the end of the world had come. They literally looked to the sky for the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In the courtyard, the priest screamed esoteric bible verses at them and he opened the bottomless pit and there arose a smoke out of the pit and there came out of the smoke locusts on the earth and under them was given power and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running into battle they have a king over them which is the angel of the bottomless pit and the byzantine naval commanders held a council all day how they may counter the new turkish threat like mice, suddenly finding themselves in a cage with a viper and after endless debate Giacomo Coco proposed to lead an immediate night assault and burn all the Turkish ships in the harbor a poet put these words in his mouth quote I'm going tonight and if any man stay behind I'll baptize him a Turk and send his head flying over the walls to his friends God wills our victory the Turk is tired he has labored all day we are strong and rested we must attack now each minute gives the enemy more rest more strength we'll burn his ships or burn ourselves in chess upon pawn kill a queen As well as a rook Well, my pawns, let's go take Mehmet's queen I'll show you the way to the end of the board And I'll make you all my queens before this night is over Let him who calls himself a Christian follow me Let all others die with their comrade, the Turks End quote And outside the window, a priest shouted, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Stand therefore, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Then the men around Coco shouted, Amen. And they crowded the door to die with Coco, loyal to their emperor, to their God, to light itself. Stephen Russiman again takes up the story, quote, Coco's scheme was to send two large transports ahead with their sides protected from bales of cotton and wool. Two large galleys were to follow to drive off any opposition. Hidden by these great ships, two small Fustai propelled by oarsmen would creep unnoticed into the midst of the Turkish ships cutting their anchor ropes and flinging combustible flames onto them. To Coco's disappointment, it was decided to wait until the night of the 24th to make the attempt, but before the plan could launch, the Genoese demanded to participate and delay the attack to the 28th the delay seemed to last in eternity and it aged coco six years and six days his whole point had been to attack while the turks were worn out from their work dragging the ships in the harbor now the muslims were rested and waiting For six days, the Turks poured reinforcements into the harbor. On Saturday, April 28th, two hours before dawn, the attack began. Two great transports crept from the protection of the walls, accompanied by two Venetian galleys. They were followed by three light fustai, with Coco in the leading small boat. As they started out, the sailors noted a bright light flaring out from one of the towers at Galata, the neutral Italian town across the water. It might have been a signal to the Turks, but Coco told his men to shut up and keep rowing anyway. The heavy transports and the galleys moved slowly through the water, and Coco grew impatient for a fight. He knew his boat could outpace the heavy transports, and so, eager for action, he brought the Fustai through the line and made straight for the Turks. There was a sudden roar. As the Turkish guns opened fire from the shore, they were warned by a Christian trader in Galata. He sold his soul and he sold Coco for a few shekels. Coco's boat was hit by one of the first shots and it began to sink fast. A few sailors swam to shore and they claimed Coco was killed instantly in the first cannon shot. He didn't even know what hit him. Right then he was nestled in Abraham's bosom awaiting the last judgment. The Turks continued their fire on the remaining Italian ships. The two transports in front were repeatedly struck. Their bales saved them from serious damage. Many of the small boats were sunk on the spot. The Turks concentrated their main attention on one Italian galley. Two balls struck the boat with such force that she began to fill with water. The crew had to abandon her, and after this success, the Turkish fleet put out to attack the Christians who were already in full retreat. Forty Christian sailors had swum ashore to the Turkish lines. Later in the day, they were slaughtered in full sight of the city. The Christians had lost two ships and 90 of their best sailors. The harbor was lost, but the Christian fleet was still afloat. There was still hope, but there was little else. Now Mehmet decided to take his time the way a cat plays with a trapped mouse. The cannon shot, the sword drank blood, the arrow whistled day in day out like a clock. It went on, but the Turks were well-fed and rested, and each day the Christians were ground down like hamburger. Each day the rations grew less. The hunger bit their stomachs. They suffered, but they continued to struggle, and you can too. And your life don't stop, don't quit. Always keep going, and we will too. Battlecast never quits.
1: Goonies never die.
0: In the weeks that followed the Turkish entry into the city's harbor, the bombardment of the land walls never ceased. The Greeks were tasked with constant, never-ending repairs. New guns took positions and began to shell the city itself, deliberately terrorizing the civilian population. Every now and then, Turkish ships would put out and make as if to attack the walls from the seaward side. The diminutive Christian fleet had to keep on alert to intercept them at all times. It wore The sailors to the bone. Meanwhile, food was running short in Constantinople. Men were constantly leaving their positions on the walls in an attempt to provide food to their wives and children, even sharing their own rations, which made the soldiers weaker than they should have been. The emperor personally oversaw the distribution of all provisions and ensured the distribution was strictly equal. Though the rations were small, every family had their fair share. There were no more complaints. But the gardens produced little, and the Turks harassed the men who had formerly fished in the harbor. The number of cattle and swine within the walls were rapidly shrinking, as was the grain. Unless food could be imported, the population would soon starve. Many of Constantine's advisors now quietly told him to leave the city and set up a relief force from their allies in Western Europe. Constantine steadily refused, and he insisted that either he would save the city or die with it. On May 7th, Constantine would have his chance to save the city or die. A new Turkish assault came, directed against the northern, single-walled portion of the land wall. A vast number of Ottomans armed as usual with scaling ladders and hooks attached to their lances poured over the moat which they had finally filled there was bitter fighting for about three hours but the turks could not force an entry over the ruined walls one greek soldier named Bey fought like a second hector he literally cut in two the sultan's own standard bearer amir Bey. though rangabe himself was surrounded and brought down a lion brought low by a pack of hounds Still, the Christians, against all probability, repulsed the Turks, but this stopped nothing. A few days later, the Muslims attacked another section of the land wall. It was midnight when the assault began. It began... And it barely started before Mehmet sounded the retreat because the Turks were suffering such heavy losses. And yet still, the Muslims would not relent. If the Christians lost one man, they felt the loss. If Mehmet lost 100, but he killed one Christian, it was a little victory. An eyewitness describes the Muslim onslaught this way, quote, At midnight there came to the walls of the palace 50,000 Turks well ordered. And these Turkish dogs surrounded the whole palace with fierce cries according to their custom with the sounds of castanets and tambourines. And on this night they made a strong attack against the walls of the palace so that the majority of those in the city thought the city was lost. But our merciful Lord Jesus Christ did not wish this city should be so cheaply lost that night. And so the pattern repeated itself like a demonic melody. The Turks would attack a section of the wall and be repulsed. The next day, the Turkish gunners would play the Byzantines a concerto of death. A few days later, the Muslims would attack yet again. On May 18th, Mehmet's men struggled to build a road over the moat as night fell. The task was almost complete, but during the night, some of the defenders climbed down the wall like spiders, carrying kegs of explosive powder on their backs. When they lit the fuses on the kegs, the explosion shook the ground for miles. A large wooden Turkish tower burst into flames and collapsed, killing the men on it and destroying the Ottoman-built road. These successes, and the constant hope of relief from the Venetians, or the Pope, or God himself, kept the Byzantine spirits up, despite their worsening conditions. On May 23rd, the Greeks had another victory. The Turks were attempting to mine under the city walls, but on the 23rd, the Greeks captured a few miners, including a senior engineer. They gave him the full tour of pain, a lesson in arcane torture he broke. So would you, so would I. The Ottoman engineer revealed to the Christians where all the Turkish mines were placed in a detailed map. A man who was there, Niccolo Barbo, describes the fight for the mines, quote, On the 23rd day of May, at daybreak, a tunnel was discovered near the emperor's palace. When we found it, we threw Greek fire into it straight away, and it all caught fire quickly, and as it burned, it collapsed at once, suffocating a number of Turks who were in it. Two of them were brought out from the tunnel alive, who were the men in charge of it. These two men were tortured by the Greeks and made known the whereabouts of the other tunnels. And after they had given this information, their heads were cut off and their bodies thrown over the walls on the side of the city where the Turks were. And when the Turks saw it, they were very angry and felt great hatred for the Greeks and for us Italians. Quote. That night, the Christians sallied forth in full force, one by one. The mines fell, and they fell quickly. The Turks thought the locations of the mines were secret, and so they were lightly defended. The Greeks fell on the weaponless miners like Spartans, slaughtering helots. It was like watching a Vander Holyfield beat the crap out of your local mailman. No contest. After that, the Turks abandoned their mines. Mehmet raged and ordered yet another bombardment of the city. The bombs fell on churches and houses, killing old men, women, and children, while their fathers and sons ate their hands on the city walls and wondered what sin they had committed to bring such death on their families. But on the 23rd of May, the Greeks, after winning innumerable victories in the mines, would end the day weeping. A lone ship came racing towards the Byzantine harbor, trailed by countless Turkish boats. The Ottomans fired innumerable arrows into the speeding ship so it looked more like a porcupine than a boat. But the porcupine ship made it past the Ottomans. Then the terrible news came. It was the ship... Constantine himself had sent out twenty days before to search for the giant Christian relief force that everyone knew was on the way, the captain reported to Constantine. They had cruised for days, but there wasn't a single Venetian ship to be found, nor were there any rumors of a Christian relief force. They were cut off. No help was coming. There was no relief force. One sailor had told the others it was foolish to return to warn Constantine as the city had probably already fallen. The other sailor silenced him into shame. It was their duty, they declared, to go back and tell the emperor whether they would find life or death. And the emperor literally wept as he thanked them. He gave them no gift. He had nothing to give to offer to such loyal service. Their fat pensions were the bloody wounds the Turks would soon give them. Their garlands would be the unmarked mass graves a random Turkish slave would throw them in. And if the sailors were to get rewards, it would have to be in the next life. It was at this time that heaven seemed to turn against the city. Everyone remembered the prophecies that the empire would perish. The first Christian emperor had been named Constantine the last would be similarly named. Men remember, too, a prophecy that the city would never fall while the moon was full. This had cheered the defenders before May 24th, but afterwards the moon was waning and peril would soon come. Then something terrible happened. A modern historian tells the tale. Quote, On the night of the full moon, there was an eclipse that plunged the city into total darkness for fully three hours. And when the eclipse passed, the inhabitants, longing to feel secure, had made a last appeal to the Mother of God, Mary. Her holiest icon was carried on the shoulders of the faithful round the city streets. And everyone who could be spared joined the procession. And as it moved slowly and solemnly, the icon suddenly slipped off the platform on which it was carried. And when the men rushed to raise it, it seemed as though it was made of lead. Then, as the procession continued... A thunderstorm burst on the city. It was almost impossible to stand under the hail. And the rain came down in such torrents that the whole streets were flooded and children were almost swept away. The procession had to be abandoned. After the failed procession, the inhabitants believed God had abandoned the city. They looked to the sky and they saw the moon growing darker every night. Soon the ancient prophecy would be fulfilled. On May 27th, Manet rode through the Muslim ranks and swore by the eternal god and his prophet and by the 4000 prophets and by the souls of his father and his children that all the treasure found in the city would be fairly distributed among his troops. This was Manet's final speech to his men according to one Muslim chronicler quote. My friends and my countrymen, I've called you together here to remind you of the rewards that are within your grasp. All you have to do is reach out and take it. First, there is great wealth in all sorts of this city. Some in the royal palaces, and some in the houses of the mighty, and still more, laid up in churches as offerings and treasures of all sorts, constructed of gold and silver and precious stones and costly pearls. Also, there is countless wealth of magnificent furniture. Of all these, you will be the masters. Then too, there are very many noble and distinguished men, some of whom will be your slaves, and the rest will be put up for sale. Also, there are many and very beautiful women, young and good-looking, and noble virgins, lovely for marriage, and never seen by masculine eyes. Of these, some will be wise for you, while others will do for servants, and others you can sell. So, you will gain in many ways in enjoyment, service, and wealth, and you will have beautiful noble boys to lie with from noble families the capital of the ancient Romans, I give it now to you for spoil and plunder. Unlimited wealth! Men, women, children, have it! Take it! All of it! And best of all, we shall demolish a city that has been hostile to us since the days of our fathers, constantly growing at our expense, in every way plotting against our rule. We shall open the way to further conquest. And, what should I say about our opponents There are very few of them, and most of these are unarmed and inexperienced in war. How, then, can they do anything against such a multitude as we are? Now, we shall no longer merely use skirmishes and sallies or simple attacks and feints as we did at first, and as they anticipate we will do again. But once we have begun to fight, the battle will be continuous and uninterrupted night and day, without any rest or armistice until it is all up and they have died. Therefore, I think these men under the constraint of continuous fighting and of distress and starvation and sleeplessness will easily yield to us. And don't be afraid of the so-called veteran Italians. For the present they do fight on because we have been bombarding and attacking only at intervals and they think that in future we will also do likewise. But when they see the battle rolling in on them pressed in on every side and death hovering before their very eyes then they will throw away their weapons and flee and never turn around. All things go to show that victory is on our side and that we shall capture this city. As you see it is entirely surrounded as if in a net by land and sea and it cannot escape our onslaught. So then fight bravely and worthily of yourselves and of those who have fought before you and do not weaken for you see how much hangs on this struggle and do not allow any of your men to do so either. I myself, me, will be in the van of the attack. Yes, I will lead the attack and will be fighting by your side and will watch to see what other of you do also now let the ranks keep silent but when you hear the battle cry and you see the signal then kill them all and from within the city walls men could hear the muslim host cry out in jubilation there is no god but allah and muhammad is his prophet that night flares and torches suddenly cut through the darkness while swarms of workmen poured more and more material into the moat and piled stocks of arms beyond it. The Byzantines raked the workers with arrow fire, but two Ottomans seemed to sprout from the ground when one Turk was wounded. The Muslims worked by a massive firelight from literally tens of thousands of fires. Christians later recalled the fires burned so bright it seemed like daytime. Niccolo Barbo was there. Quote, On the 27th of May, these wicked pagans kept the fires going all night. The fires lasted until the middle of the night. "...with most terrible shouting, which was heard as far as the coast of Anatolia, 12 miles away, and we Christians were very fearful. This frightening thing lasted until full day, but all the next day they did nothing except bombard the poor walls and bring stretches of them down to the ground, and half of them were badly damaged." Quote. The Sultan had commanded that Monday should be a day of rest and atonement. The final assault would come on Tuesday... Throughout Monday, Mehmet planned the assault. He would send his fleet against the seaward walls while the infantry simultaneously attacked the land-facing walls. On the final Monday, as the Muslims rested in silence, the Christians brought the holy icons out from their churches and used them to bless the most damaged sections of the defenses. Throughout the day, the church bells rang and processions of soldiers and civilians sang hymns and repeated the Kyrie Eleison. The Lord have mercy liturgy. Then Constantine addressed the throng from a castle tower, like an Aragorn. It would either be his last address before victory, or his last address on the planet. You know well, my brothers, that the hour has come... The enemy of our faith wishes to oppress us with the entire strength of the siege force as a snake about to spew its venom. He's in a hurry to devour us like a savage lion. For this reason, I implore you to fight like men with brave souls as you have done from the beginning up to this day against the enemy of our faith. And I hand over to you, my brothers, this glorious, famous, noble city, this shining queen of cities, our motherland you know well my brothers that we have just four obligations on this earth which force us to prefer death to our own survival first is our faith second motherland third the emperor anointed by the lord and fourth our family well my brothers if we must fight for one of these obligations how much more should we fight if all four are at stake and I tell you truly, if God grants victory to the unrighteous Turks because of my own sins, then we will gladly sacrifice our lives for the holy faith and our sacred city, which Christ gave us with his own blood. This is the most important thing of all. Even if one gains the entire world but loses his soul in the process, what will it benefit? Nothing, brothers. Again, Nothing. Second. We will be deprived of our motherland and our liberty. Third, our empire, renowned in the past but presently humbled, low and exhausted, will be ruled by a tyrant and an infidel. Fourth, our families will be killed the lucky soul. Our children hoard. Everything we are, everything we love, while scattered to the winds like sand in a hurricane. This wretch of a sultan has besieged our city for 57 days. He has not relaxed the blockade neither day nor night, but by the grace of Christ our Lord, who sees all things, the enemy has been repelled with shame and dishonor. Yet now too, my brothers, feel no cowardice. We are placing all hope in the irresistible glory of God alone. Some have faith in arms, others in cavalry, others in might numbers but we believe in the name of our lord our god our savior and second in our arms and strength granted to us by divine power i know the countless hordes of the infidels will advance against us they attempt to frighten us with loud yells and innumerable battle cries but you are all familiar with their chattering and i need say no more about it for a long time they will continue so and will release over us countless arrows like the sand of the sea itself but with god's help their arrows will not harm us. I see that we are few, but we are not like the ill-trained Turks. All of you are experienced and seasoned warriors. This ain't your first battle. It's the Turks' last battle. Keep your right hand armed with the sword, extended in front of you at all times. You're protected inside the walls, while our enemies will advance without cover and with toil. For these reasons, my fellow soldiers, prepare yourselves and be firm and remain valiant for the mercy of God. Take your example from the few elephants of the Carthaginians and how they dispersed the numerous cavalry of the Romans with their noise and appearance. If one dumb beast put another to flight, we, the masters of horse and all animals, can surely even do better against our advancing enemy. Since they are dumb animals, worse even than pigs, present your shields, swords, arrows, and spears to them, imagining that you are hunting wild boars, so that the impious may learn that they are dealing not with dumb animals, but with their lords and their masters, the descendants of the Greeks and the Romans themselves. You are well aware that this irreligious sultan, the enemy of our holy faith, violated for no good reason the peace treaty we had with him. Suddenly, he appeared like the Black Plague. This devil put our farms, our gardens, our houses to the torch, while he killed and enslaved as many of our Christian brothers as he found. He broke the treaty of friendship. Well, my brothers, since he started the siege and the blockade, let us finish it for him. A mighty hurricane bellows and screams and sends his waves careening against our sea walls. But no hurricane has breached our stout walls. Our walls repel the distempered waves the way beautiful women ignore men. Just so, our walls will repel the sea of Turks like so many dumb waves. The Turkish hurricane is loud and annoying, but it's little else, my brothers. Our walls have stood for a thousand years through ten thousand hurricanes. They will stand for a thousand more. My brother, this is the queen of cities, the shield of our motherland, the shelter of Christians. Long ago, our city bloomed like a rose of the field, and so she shall again, in this life or the next. Now, Mehmet! Wants to enslave her and throw the yoke upon the mistress of our city, our holy churches, where the Holy Trinity was worshipped, where the Holy Ghost was glorified in hymns, where angels were heard praising, enchant the deity of, and in the incarnation of God's word. He wants to turn our sacred shrines into shrines of the mad and false prophet Muhammad, as well into stables for horses and camels. I will not allow it. I'll never allow it. Consider then, my brothers and comrades in arms, how the commemoration of our death, our memory, our fame, and our freedom can be rendered eternal. Why, years from now, they'll speak about us, and they'll talk about us, and the eyes of countless martyrs look down on you from heaven by the right hand of God's throne. Let them see you conquer, or let them see you standing next to them and looking down on us as we fight or die. Look down on us from heaven, brothers. There was nothing left to say. The men retired to their battle positions. The women and children hid themselves as best they could. Their ceaseless prayers fogged out from the city. Before a tsunami arrives, the seas retreat and seem peaceful. The children dance in the shallow, lapping waters. Then the wave comes in one massive onslaught, uprooting trees, houses, and cars. Just so. The Turks assembled before no man's land, and then the wave came. On the night of May 28th, Turkish soldiers came forward in thousands to complete the infilling of the moat, while still more brought up cannons and war machines. A heavy shower of rain poured on the Muslim workers, but their work continued unhindered. Then a sudden noise broke out that horrified the defenders. All along the line of the walls, the Turks rushed in to attack, screaming while drums and trumpets and fights urged them forward. They were attacking everywhere at once. Now, we at Battlecast like to let the people on the ground speak for themselves, and so I'll let Niccolo Barbo, generally regarded as one of the most reliable sources for the battle, describe what he saw at the last battle of Constantinople. Quote... The Sultan divided his troops into three groups of 50,000 men. The first group, which was the subject Christians, had the task of carrying the ladders to the walls and they tried to raise the ladders up and at once we threw them down to the ground with the men who were raising them and they were all killed at once and we threw big stones down on them from the battlements, running their noses to the back of their skulls so that few escaped alive. In fact, anyone who approached beneath the walls was killed. The area before our walls was a morgue. The wounded Ottomans moaned and black amid amid the stiff corpses of the dead so you could hear little else. And when those who were raising up the ladder saw so many dead, they tried to retreat towards their camp so as not to be killed by the stones. And when the rest of the Turks who were behind saw they were running away at once, they cut them to pieces with their scimitars and made them turn back towards the walls so that they had the choice of dying on one side or the other. And when this first group was killed and cut to pieces, the second group began to attack vigorously. The first group was sent forward for two reasons. First, because they preferred that Christians should die rather than Turks. And secondly, to wear us out in the city. And as I have said, when the first group was dead or wounded, the second group came on like unchained lions. End quote. first wave were subject troops from his many vassal states. Most of them were Christians. They attacked on a wide front in order to ensure that the Christians remained spread out on the walls and couldn't reinforce one another. Niccolo continues his story. And when we saw the second wave of Turkish troops at once, the alarm was sounded throughout the entire city and at every post on the wall, and every man ran crying out to help. And the eternal God showed us his mercy against these Turkish dogs so that every man ran to beat off the attack of the pagans, and they began to fall back outside the walls. But this second group was made up of brave men who came to the walls and wearied those in the city greatly by their constant attack. They also made a great attempt to raise up ladders on the wall. But the men on the walls bravely threw them down to the ground, and many Turks were killed. Also, our crossbows and cannon kept on firing into their camp at this time and killed an incredible number of Turks. One explosion burst into the midst of Turkish infantry and turned them into blood like a solid stick of butter melting into liquid instantaneously and when the second group had come forward and attempted unsuccessfully to get into the city there then approached the third group their best soldiers the evil ones the janissaries a modern historian explains the third wave the time came for the janissaries to enter the battle before the christians had time to refresh themselves and do more than a few rough repairs on the stockade A rain of missiles torrented on them, and behind the blizzard, the Janissaries advanced on the double, keeping the ranks in perfect order, unbroken by the missiles of the Greeks. Mehmet himself led them as far as the barrels to hack at the beams that supported the ramparts and to mount the breastworks with ladders. The Christians were exhausted. They had fought with only a few minutes break for more than four hours, but they fought with desperation, knowing that if they gave way, it would be the end. The fighting was continuous and hand to hand for an hour. The Janissaries could make no headway at all. Niccolo Barbo recounts what he saw on that fateful day. Quote, This third group attacked the wall of the poor city not like Turks, not like lions but like demons come up from hell, screaming their blasphemies as they came on. This third group of Turks All fine fighters found those on the walls very weary after having fought with the first and second groups. And while these pagans were eager and fresh for battle, and with the loud cries they uttered on the field, they spread fear throughout the city and took away our courage with their shouting and noise. The wretched people in the city felt themselves to have already been taken and decided to sound the alarm throughout the whole city, all crying at the top of their voices, Mercy, mercy, God! Send help from heaven to the empire of Constantine so the pagan people may not rule over the empire And all through the city, all the women were on their knees, and all the men too, praying most earnestly for our God to grant us victory over this pagan race, these wicked Turks, enemies of our faith. The Turks were attacking fiercely on the landward side by San Romano, by the headquarters of the most serene emperor and all his nobles, and his principal knights and his bravest men, who all stayed by him fighting bravely without relent. The Turks were attacking, firing their cannon again and again with arrows without number. There were so much shouting from these pagans that the very air seemed to be split apart by their voices, and this fierce battle lasted until daybreak." That's when disaster struck. There was a small door half hidden in the corner of one wall. It had almost been forgotten by the Christians themselves, but a few old men remembered it was there. The Italians had made great use of it throughout the day, using it to come up behind the Turks and surround groups of them. But now some men, overwhelmed with exhaustion and the strains of battle, had forgotten to bar the little gate after returning from a sortie. After a few Turks saw the weakness, they began to pour through the hole in the confusion. About 50 Turks made it inside the walls. They would have been surrounded and massacred had not a worse calamity befell the Christians. Giovanni Longo who had stoutly defended the wall since his arrival two months before had been shot in the breastplate at close range and seriously wounded he was bleeding everywhere his face pale, his breath ragged he begged his men to take him off the battlefield one of them went to Constantine who was actually physically fighting on the front, and told him Giovanni was wounded. Immediately, Constantine hurried to Giovanni's side and begged him not to abandon the front line. The results could be disastrous for morale. He warned Giovanni, But Giovanni insisted he must leave The gate was open and his bodyguard carried him into the city Through the streets and onto a Genoese ship His troops, the absolute cream of the Italians Saw the wounded Giovanni And many assumed Giovanni had deemed the city lost And chose to retreat One of them shouted like a horribly frightened child The Turks have breached the wall And before the little gate could be shut The Genoese streamed headlong through it The emperor and his Greeks were left on the field alone Mehmet noticed the panic, crying, THE CITY IS OURS! He ordered his Janissaries to charge again and they were led by a literal giant named Hassan. Hassan hacked his way over the top of the broken stockade and 30 Janissaries followed him. The Greeks fought like tigers, knowing the fate of their families if they should fall. Hassan himself was slain and 17 of his comrades perished with him, but the remainder held their positions on the stockade and many more Janissaries joined them on the top. The Greeks fought to the last man, but the sheer weight of numbers forced them back to the inner wall. In front of it was a ditch that had been constantly deepened in order to provide earth for wall repairs. Many of the Greeks were forced back into these holes and massacred there. Now the Turks were on the stockade and finally they had the high ground. It was their turn to blast the Greeks with volley after volley of arrows. It was a massacre. The Turks shot their own men, but they shot more Greeks, and the soldiers literally slipped into blood as the battle turned into a slaughterhouse. Suddenly a Greek looked up and saw a Turkish flag flying from a tower. The the city is taken, he cried, and the rumor spread like darkness at nightfall. An eyewitness describes the scene he saw, quote, When the Turks got inside the first wall they quickly captured the first row but before they managed this a great number of them died at the hands of those who were above them on the walls who killed them with stones at their pleasure. After having captured the first wall the Turks made themselves strong there and then there came inside the wall about 70,000 Turks with such force that it seemed a very inferno and soon the walls from one end to the other a full six miles were full of Turks. The Christians on the remaining walls continued to work death on unbelievers. So many were killed That 40 carts could not have carried away the dead Turks who died before getting into the city. End quote. The emperor tried to rally his men. He rode straight into the thickest of the fight and found the gate Giovanni had passed through wide open. He tried to close it, but it could not be retaken. The Turks were storming in like water. Then Constantine mounted his horse with his hand-picked bodyguard. There was the Spaniard Don Francisco of Toledo and his cousin Theophilus and a faithful comrade named John de Malta. These men rode from one section of the wall to another, leaving a trail of dead Muslims in their wake. It was like when Theodin rode out from Helms deep in lord of the rings and together they tried to rally the greeks but it was all in vain they dismounted and for a few minutes the four of them held the approach of the gate through which giovanni was carried but the defense was broken theophilus shouted that he would rather die than live and disappeared in a tidal wave of janissaries the way characters are submerged by zombies in a movie constantine fought to the last he was never seen again Some Greeks say that he was taken away by God and still awaits for the day when he'll come back and take up his rule again in Istanbul. Meanwhile, Turkish detachments were making their way along the walls, flinging open any gate they came to for their comrades to enter. Soon the walls that had stood for over a thousand years looked like Swiss cheese. All their gates were wide open. Many Christians found themselves trapped on the walls and cut off. Most fought to the last man. Because so many Turkish sailors had deserted their post to attack the city, most of the remaining Christian fleet was able to slip away to Italy and Crete. A small number were captured. Giovanni Longo died of his wounds on June 1st. By the end of the day, the city had fallen. Christian Asia ceased to exist. Islamic law had a strict code regarding cities that were taken in battle. If the city surrendered of its own free will, it could not be pillaged. But if it resisted until the end, the soldiers were given three days to pillage by divine right. And Mehmet's soldiers believed in their divine rights. At first, the soldiers slew everyone they met in the streets. Men, women, children, without distinction. The blood ran in rivers in the streets. I want you to picture a cool, fast-moving creek you used to play in when a child. Now imagine it warm and running with blood. Imagine the iron smell in your young nostrils. Look down and see a face floating in the death creek that a few minutes before had been your neighbor. That's what the Greek children saw on their last day on the planet. Soldiers and sailors made a mad dash to gain loot before someone else did. They raided the palace first. Others made for the churches. Anything of value, including people, was taken. At St. Sophia, the faithful packed the church to the brim, singing the divine liturgy and desperately hoping for divine intervention. They prayed in vain. The doors were hammered down, the Turks tripping over themselves as they scrambled for loot and women. The old and the weak were killed on the spot while the icons of the saints looked down in judgment. Everyone else was chained together, and the Muslims raided the convents too. Some of the younger women preferred death to dishonor and killed themselves. The rest were sold as slaves. To give you an idea of the extent of the destruction, Mehmet would later give 400 Greek children to each of the three greatest Muslim potentates of the time. Over 4,000 Christians were killed in the fighting, and a further 70,000 were enslaved. No one knows the number of Turkish deaths. Throughout the city, the elderly were slaughtered, as were a large number of infants deemed worthless. I read a book once called Systematic Theology by Louis Burkhoff, where he states man has a universal knowledge of good that is God-given. William Lane Craig, the famous Christian philosopher, makes this same claim. When I read these accounts, when the old and the young are slaughtered like flies, I wonder if it's true. Is there a universal knowledge of good in men? The babies of Constantinople, along with the women of Hiroshima, would probably disagree. In any case, Constantinople was dead. The Thousand Year City was dead. Christian Asia was dead. This battle echoes through time. Over 30 years ago, Turkey petitioned the European Union for entry. Perhaps no other country's petition for entry has been more controversial, but What if Constantinople were still a Greek-speaking, largely Christian nation? Would there still be such a problem with Byzantium's entry? We all know the answer. We can dress it up, and we can make mountains out of molehills, but in the end, a battle is still hindering policy today. War is not the only important event in human affairs. Warfare is not the only way policy and change enter our world, but it is one of them. It would be better for us all to simply acknowledge it, but tell that to your modern social science department head at a major university. I didn't once and it cost me a lot. So now I'm asking you, what do you think?
1: Oh, another episode of Battlecast in the Books. Thanks everybody for listening. We greatly appreciate it. Remember to hit the subscribe button on Battlecast so you can get episodes anytime they hit. Also, leave us a review on iTunes. If not. You're a bad person. (laughs) You are a bad person. Get more Battlecast by going to thebattlecast.com where you can find bonus content for free. If you have any questions, please email us at battlecastnet at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and thanks for listening. It's good to be back.
0: And that's it for me here at Battlecast. I want to thank all of you for sharing the show on social media. I want to thank our biggest fan, Mark, who's always promoting the show. Hey, Mark. We love you, Mark. Once again, I'm Luke, and I'm wishing you good times with good people and good weather. Bye-bye.